I'm Arthur Falls. This podcast is a personal exploration of a constantly evolving set of technologies. As such, the introduction tends to change with my overarching thesis. This can mean episode by episode, as has been the case recently. In an effort to make it more intelligible to newcomers, I've decided to settle on a broad description. This podcast is an exploration of decentralized information networks, secure computing, and autonomous software. Technologies which enable new global information networks, collectively known as the Third Web. Aparna Krishnan is Head of Education at Blockchain at Berkeley and co-founder of Mechanism Labs, an open-source blockchain research lab. Earlier this year, Aparna was awarded a scholarship by the Definity Foundation for Mechanism Labs' research into consensus mechanisms. This episode is essentially a primer for advanced discussion of consensus in decentralized networks. Thanks for joining me, Aparna. Would you mind introducing yourself and explaining a bit about what you do and tell us a bit about Mechanism Labs? Yeah, absolutely. So, hi, I'm Aparna Krishnan. I'm the co-founder of Mechanism Labs, which is an open source blockchain research lab. I'm also the co-founder of the education team at Blockchain at Berkeley. I've taught the largest university accredited blockchain class at UC Berkeley, and I've taught a few blockchain executive education programs, all before getting started on consensus research, and that's been my journey in blockchain. That sounds like quite an illustrious start to getting involved in a subject. I was looking for some sort of forcing function to get myself to learn blockchain, and signing up to teach a class turns out to be the best way to do that. Every week, I would spend a larger amount of time like learning the content for the class that I had to teach than I spent on the other classes that I was taking that semester. So that was definitely a crazy ride. But going from there to teaching different executive education programs on blockchain, I learned a lot about the technology. And I realized like all this knowledge that I accumulated, I could definitely do something with that. And either I could continue teaching or I could go ahead and help make blockchain the dream that it was supposed to be. And the best way that I thought back then was to do it was by going ahead and actually diving deep into the research by like building out the technology. So that's how I got into consensus research about two years ago, looking into proof of work, proof of stake back then. It's interesting because when usually people talk about consensus, they start with distributed systems and then they go into blockchain. But for me, it was a very different experience starting with the blockchain part of it and then realizing that this field of consensus research has been there for over like 20, 30, 40 years. And it's such an in-depth field. And blockchain is just the very, very end of it. With that being the case, can you tell us where research into consensus in these distributed systems, where that began? So a lot of like Cynthia Dwork's work, and this was a very, very like profound beginning of consensus in stronger adversarial models. And this was a famous paper. There was definitely other 
consensus research happening before that in adversarial models where nodes would just go offline and online, where there is no challenge, but there are multiple people in different parts of the world just trying to communicate with each other. So how did this field progress and how did this capture people's interest over so many decades? Yeah, so I definitely don't know if consensus or cryptography caught people's eye in the same way that it does today through blockchain a few years ago. I actually feel like blockchain in a really, really impactful way has like brought out technologies like zero knowledge proofs, has brought research that people would do in probability theory or distributed systems back into the mainstream as something that's really, really important. I think people back then researched it because it was definitely an interesting topic of study, but the applications of it were pretty limited back then. But I definitely think blockchains have had a huge impact in reinvigorating this kind of research. So can you tell us about the research that you've done at Mechanism Labs on contemporary consensus mechanisms? Yeah, absolutely. So as I said, the way I got into research was into consensus was through blockchains. So I started looking at different proof of work and proof of stake based blockchain protocols. So a lot of people might have heard of Definity, of Tendermint, Ethereum's new protocols, Bitcoin. I would say like the focus for Mechanism Labs has so far been on proof of stake or proof of stake, proof of work hybrid protocols. Why is that? So Bitcoin, I guess, started out with proof of work. And one thing we saw as a huge problem was this huge energy inefficiency. Like, I personally don't know if mining is long term sustainable. And when you in general think of building a technology that is scalable across generations, across people, across countries, I think an important aspect of it is also how long term sustainable is it going to be? What are other externalities of such a technology? And I think that mining in and of itself is not necessarily any more efficient than today's economic systems or financial systems. If anything, it's probably going to make all the systems that we built and optimize over the years more inefficient. And if we're building a technology for the future, I think we need to be building something that brings out long-term sustainability and probably is way more efficient than what we have today. So that's kind of what caught my eye about proof of stake. And I think proof of stake was put forward as one of the very earlier models that were long-term energy efficient. Recently, there have definitely been like other models like what Chia is working on, proof of space and time, proof of elapsed time and such. But these are all newer ideas and newer concepts. So that's why Mechanism Labs, I guess, chose to focus on proof of stake. I'd like to dig down into your views on proof of stake and how you kind of subcategorized that category itself. But can you delineate some of these other categories of consensus mechanisms that you've uncovered? Yeah. So I guess one way of thinking about any of these consensus mechanisms is when you really say consensus, there are two parts to it. One is the Sybil control part, which is how do you prevent people from creating multiple identities? And the second part is how do you actually come to agreement between the people who have been chosen to come to agreement? And when you say proof of stake or proof of work or proof of elapsed time or any of these other things, you're essentially trying to have some sort of civil control mechanism. With proof of work, that is by burning energy. With proof of stake, that's by putting down capital. Proof of authority, it's by reputation. And proof of space and time, like the name sounds, exactly that. And I think 
each of these is just you're putting down a different resource to then select like different people who would be part of the group that comes to agreement. So this is like a kind of a cost of playing ball then? Yeah, yeah. The actual part where people come to agreement is still very much heavily reliant on traditional consensus concepts like BFT, PBFT, and such. So what are the traditional ways of coming to consensus? Yeah, so I guess when people think about blockchain consensus versus traditional consensus, a key differentiator is in traditional consensus, you have no concept of probabilistic finality. The goal is for all honest nodes to come to agreement on the same view of the network. Versus in blockchains, you have this concept of all the nodes may, with a high probability, come to a common agreement of what the network looks like, but it's a probabilistic guarantee. And I guess this is where traditional consensus differs from blockchains. So what are the other ways of coming to consensus? So you, so you mentioned Paxos, practical Byzantine fault tolerance. Are there other kind of well-known ones? Yeah, so these are the traditional ways of coming to consensus. What Bitcoin uses, for example, is the longest chain rule where the longest sequence of blocks is then the main chain. Or like Ethereum uses the ghost protocol. And each of these... The reason I call them probabilistic consensus is because if China tomorrow is secretly mining the longest proof of work chain, the moment that they come out with the longest chain, the previous longest chain that everyone else thought was the longest chain no longer exists or like that gets discarded versus in traditional consensus, that is never a thing that would happen. Right. In these blockchain consensus systems, there's the possibility for a pre-existing social consensus to be retrospectively or retroactively detached from what is represented in the blockchain itself by virtue of some hidden entity building a longer chain and then replacing the chain that everyone was relying on and it was basing their actions on with their longer chain. Yeah. And I think the other interesting part, though, I would say is it's not necessarily true of all blockchains. It obviously depends on what sort of pairing any blockchain consensus uses. Like it depends on what rule they use to come to agreement. But blockchain protocols in general try to use some modification of traditional consensus protocols because they're not very scalable. And another interesting thing about blockchains in general is at least like with Bitcoin, you have this ability for anyone in the world to be part of the Bitcoin mining community, to join and suddenly join the group that's adding blocks to the blockchain, that's being part of this consensus process, versus that's not necessarily a possibility with traditional consensus protocols. And this idea of permissionless is something that blockchains have enabled. And in order to have these additional properties, you kind of have to trade off something. So what you end up trading off is well, I don't necessarily 100% need a guarantee of consensus, as long as with a high probability I reach consensus, that's good enough. But there's also got to be some inefficiency that's introduced by having like node churn, by having this constantly dynamic, unpredictable network. Yeah, and that is definitely one reason why like decentralized systems are way less efficient than centralized systems. Think of how bad it must be if like in every set, every block, you have a new committee. Turn definitely has its disadvantages, but one huge advantage that I see of blockchain as a technology is that it's there. It provides this kind of certainty even in times of uncertainty. 
So you don't necessarily need a blockchain to be the most efficient application, but you need Bitcoin as a payment system when the government crashes on you, when there's no longer any central authority that you can rely on. That's when the blockchain will still be there for you. And in a sense, having the ability to manage a huge number of people who want to join and leave, I think is really impactful because it provides a large number of people to keep the system up and running in times of need. And so there's a sense in which this comes back to something you mentioned earlier, where you said that you wanted to see the dream of blockchain realized. And this sounds like the dream of having a redundant system that has qualities that are both democratic and egalitarian, but also don't suffer from the same infrastructure or platform risk that our existing centralized solutions to these problems, say the problems of currency, present. Yeah. I definitely think like even in building out the dream of blockchains, we can build a more optimized, more efficient version of that dream. But yeah, that's pretty much how I see like proof of stake and other similar technologies. Okay, as a way to come up with a more efficient version or a more efficient instantiation of this dream than what we've seen in Bitcoin itself. Exactly. And also, I don't know if Bitcoin would be long term sustainable and would be a certain fallback especially if mining itself is not something which everyone can do and is not something which is good for the earth. And I guess in order to provide something that is longer term sustainable, a proof of stake seems like a really interesting concept. Okay, so let's turn now to proof of stake now that we've kind of we've reached this point in the conversation. So could you define proof of stake and differentiate it to proof of work? Yeah, absolutely. So proof of stake is basically this way of preventing people from creating multiple identities where people who own a lot of coins of a particular network get to be part of the consensus of that network. And the idea is that if you own a lot of coins, you're incentivized to act in an honest manner in order to have the value of your coins appreciate or at least like maintain. If you act dishonestly, the value of your coins go down. Versus in proof of work, the idea is basically one CPU, one vote, or at least that was Satoshi's idea. But you essentially have to use some amount of computational power in order to prevent you from parallelly computing a lot of things. And that's how you kind of create the civil control mechanism. Okay, so the idea is that you're exposing yourself economically in proof of stake and you're expending energy in proof of work then. Exactly. So that all being said, can you break down some of the different types of proof of stake protocol? Yeah, I guess the broad categorization that a lot of people use is chain-based or BFT-based, which is basically what kind of underlying consensus does a proof-of-stake mechanism use? Is it something that provides finality or is it something where finality is probabilistic? What is this PBFT and when was it developed? PBFT stands for Practical Byzantine Fault Tolerance. It was written by Barbara Liskov in 99. The vibe I'm getting here is that these technologies were kind of, and this might be a kind of a Luddite's mischaracterization of this, but as almost like a curiosity that had these kind of very niche applications where it might have been extremely valuable. And it's only just now that they've suddenly found this like highly financialized purpose that achieved all of this renown. 
I would definitely say that that was quite the case. Just like if you look at other cryptography or other research that was going on, like zero knowledge proofs has been an area of study for over like 30 or 40 years, if I'm not mistaken. And it's only very recently that the applications of it are coming to light or that the industry is so widely using these technologies. So bringing this back to what we were just talking about, which was the different types of proof of stake protocols. And you said you've got these practical Byzantine fault tolerant based protocols, and then you also have chain based protocols. And Tendermint was one of the examples you gave. Yeah. That from memory, I think that was the first proof of stake consensus protocol. Tendermint? Yeah. I guess the first set of proof of stake protocols were like PeerCoin and NXT and like there are a couple more. BitShares uses something. So what were you guys' findings on those protocols and why haven't we seen them more broadly applied? Yeah, so we definitely did not include them in our analysis, but from briefly reading the papers, they seemed a lot more primitive and there definitely was a larger possibility of attacks on those early protocols, like the idea of state grinding attacks where a miner could basically go back in time and try different possibilities of what block would give him the chance to be the block creator for the next round seemed to be a huge attack vector on these early protocols. Was that because they derived their randomness from block hashes? Yes, exactly. Oh, whoa. So I've never heard about this before, but I'm beginning to just guess what a state grinding attack must be. So is this where you know that the a certain block hash is going to lead to your selection from the node base? And then so what you do is you retrospectively go through and try and generate a block that has a hash that will select you because there's a limited number of participants in the network and then you do this like continuously so that you can create this whole big new history and all this takes is trial and error on your part and then because it's chain based then you can just kind of drop this thing in the same way that China could have been secretly mining their own longer version of the Bitcoin blockchain. Exactly. Wow that is so cool. And that was a huge problem with these early protocols. And so this is what was happening in 2014 then? Yeah, definitely. I think like as early as around the time of Ethereum, maybe like even 2013, some of these were discussed on Reddit and other forums. So that's why none of them worked. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons we didn't choose to include them in the analysis. They're definitely very cool ideas, and they gave rise to like different protocols that we see today, like Affinity and Tendermint and Thunderella and all these really cool projects. But there were these really obvious and glaring attacks that definitely didn't seem any more sustainable than Bitcoin. If anything, it seemed even less sustainable. What's different with the new generation? Can you identify a handful of protocols that exemplify the new generation of proof of stake protocols and what sets them apart? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the protocols that we looked at would be Definity, Tendermint, Casper, like Ethereum's Casper's, Thunderella. And these are definitely some examples of the newer generation of protocols. One way that they get around by stake grinding, like Definity, for example, is really cool. They use threshold relay and they use like this decentralized way of creating randomness. And then you have like Tendermint, which basically doesn't use randomness at all. It just has a round robin algorithm to choose who's going to create the block next. The ideas behind like Thunderella and Algorand, all of these use some really clever like randomness generation to prevent state grinding attacks. 
In fact, like Algorand uses this really clever thing called VRFs, which hides who the block creator is until the block has been created. Tentament obviously stands on its own because it provides true finality, right? True finality at the protocol level until you need to fall back onto the social layer. This is another place that Bitcoin maximalists like to argue on. They like to argue on the fact that Tendermint, if you break the assumptions, you have to default back into having some sort of external intervention. But what I would like to point out is in Tendermint, a minority below the assumption cannot cause finality to break in the protocol. But in Bitcoin, a minority below the assumption can cause finality to be revoked in protocol. For example, in Tendermint, you can have at most a third being malicious. If you have less than a third of the stakeholders or a third of the voting power malicious, then there's no way to break finality of Tendermint the protocol. But on the other hand, with Bitcoin, if you have 10% for malicious, then even those 10% can change the finality of the Bitcoin blockchain. Maybe not 100%, but with some probability, they can change what the longest chain is. And so this just must be over like shorter distances or shorter time periods, but still significantly. Yeah. So for example, in Bitcoin, if you threaten people saying that I have 10% of mining power, I will not mine on top of your chain. If, for example, you include Arthur's transactions, I will not mine on top of your chain. That in and of itself is incentive enough to prevent someone from mining on top of a chain that includes Arthur's block. So no one will want to include Arthur's transactions or blocks. Because they'll be economically disincentivized to do so just by virtue of the leverage that that one participant with 10% of the hash power has. Exactly, which is something you don't necessarily see in Tendermint. You definitely see other kinds of attacks, other kinds of even bribing attacks, but this particular attack you don't see. Okay, so it sounds like this is extremely complex and anywhere you look, there's a kind of a pothole to break your ankle as you go down this road trying to build this secure distributed system. Definitely. And I think what makes it harder is the fact that you have layers upon layers of complexity. You have distributed systems, which you're bringing in. You're bringing in this blockchain component, which requires civil control mechanisms in order to have this churn component. And when you compose all of these different things together, it's not just the security of individual components, which is important. It's the security of the combination of all of these coming together, which is, again, important. So proof of stake gives us civil resistance, but there has to be other components of this. So I think of, for example, right, like it sounds like built-in randomness generation is a way to prevent state grinding attacks. And there also has to be some kind of economic reward in this system as well. Mm -hmm. I definitely see proof of stake as a way of both combining this sort of reward distribution mechanism and the incentives around that and using that incentive mechanism to sort of create a sort of governance scheme where only people who truly care about the protocol like hold the coins and then are involved in the process of like maintaining and growing the protocol and in exchange for doing that they're given more coins versus in like proof of work that's kind of separated out where the coin itself is different. Like anyone can hold the coin, but they don't necessarily have the powers to govern the system because they hold the coin. Okay. And it also means that the people securing the network are a different set of participants to the people who are actually using it as well, I suppose. Exactly. 
versus in proof of stake, it's the same set of participants, unless you have like an economic model which separates the two. So do you see any particular design patterns or economic models that you see as most promising for creating this long-term sustainable system? That's been quite challenging because one, it's hard to get this combination of both economic security along with cryptographic and distributed system security. And it doesn't matter what you end up coming out with, even if you build an economic scheme that is incentive compatible, which basically means aligning the best actions of each person with what the best actions are for the network. Even if you do all of that, there's still this external attack vector of bribing attacks. And I'm not sure if anyone's thought through how to prevent those or how to prevent collusion of participants. And that's still a very, very open problem. I've definitely not seen a lot of sophisticated economic incentive schemes from any protocol so far. Maybe that data is not publicly available, and I'm sure they're all working on it privately, but that's information that I haven't seen a lot of yet. When I hear the way people talk about these protocols that they represent, right? And I mean, look, I'm absolutely guilty of this myself as well. We treat these things as these panaceic solutions to problems of securing international networks with no dominant stakeholdership. But it sounds like what you're telling me is that there is no silver bullet and that we don't know what is really going to be the final configuration of these systems in the future. Yeah, I actually believe that because one, for example, none of these systems have been built or are out there and are in production. Two, who knows? Maybe certain kinds of attacks might never even happen. And maybe certain other kinds of attacks might happen. Like, for example, Satoshi never anticipated ASICs would be a thing. But guess they were. And guess that's why mining pools are centralized. And guess these kind of practical issues are going to be really hard to foresee. And it's definitely only going to be something that we can realistically expect to deal with once these protocols are out there and in the world. Okay, well, that gives us a really great view on this whole space and the way it's been developing. What's next for Mechanism Labs and yourself? So Mechanism Labs has been working on a lot of cool stuff. We've recently been focusing a lot more on incentive schemes and kind of nailing down what it means to have a stable, scalable consensus protocol. So we'll definitely have a lot more work and a lot more blogs coming out on that. Definitely also just been converting a lot of our research into a format that people can follow along with. Currently, I think there's a huge gap in knowledge on what consensus is, where any of these systems are, how to compare them, how to think about them. And Mechanism Labs has been doing a lot of work on making all this content more understandable. Why do you say Mechanism Labs is an open source research project? How did you describe it? Yeah, an open source blockchain research lab. What does that mean? So the idea basically means that we put out almost all of our work and all of our research that's happening on GitHub. So if anyone wants to get involved and join and be part of it, they can just hop on our GitHub and contribute, make a pull request and work on it. We also have a Telegram, which is at mechanism underscore labs, which anyone who wants to have interesting conversations about any of the technical things happening in the space can hop in and chat about. And often I've seen that these conversations lead to other projects and other ideas that people come up with. So actually, just now that we're here, what's your favorite project in the blockchain space? 
It's so hard for me to say that I have a favorite project because I'm really excited about all of the different things that are happening. Like I care a lot about seeing privacy being solved. So Zcash is definitely doing a great job on that end. I care about like seeing how scalability comes out. And I guess all of the projects that we wrote about in our paper are projects that I'm excited about, including Definity, Algorand, Thunder, Ethereum. I'm also really, really excited about proofs of storage. So what IPFS is doing, because I think that's going to be another really important component before we can efficiently like move forward. Okay, so storage. This is really interesting because I just read an article on Hacking Distributed, which is Gun's blog, Emin Gunsara's blog. It's a really good website. People should follow it. And it was talking about a new approach to proof of replication. And this is an outstanding problem that I've been aware of in the space for a while, but I haven't seen or heard of any really compelling solutions for it, in spite of the fact that we have SIA and Storage and others you know, stepping up to provide these distributed storage solutions. Blue Zell's another one. And I mean, I haven't really looked into these guys' work very much, but I was wondering if you had. I've not read Goon's blog post on it. I know some of the latest work on that was with verifiable delay functions, which again is another really, really cool piece of technology that I'm excited about. Yeah, what's interesting about verifiable delay functions? Yeah, so verifiable delay functions are basically, the idea behind them is in a general like commit reveal scheme, you have this concept of everyone who's a participant has to make a commitment. So you send one message at the time of commitment, and then you send another message to reveal the value that you committed to. But with a VDF, what you can essentially do is just make a commitment, and then the reveal happens automatically after some amount of time. Or basically anyone out there can compute the reveal, but the computation it takes to get the value that you committed to takes some amount of time. Couldn't this just be hacked with ASICs? No, so the idea behind BDFs is that it requires some amount of sequential computation. So it doesn't matter how many parallel resources you have, the computation has to happen one after another. Okay. The time it would take to compute on an ASIC versus the time it would take to compute on your phone is definitely very drastically different. But asymptotically, you can kind of approximate it. Okay, because now that I'm thinking about this, because people mined Bitcoin on their CPUs because it was maybe not super efficient, but they were just sequentially rapidly solving these hashing problems, hashing these blocks. Mm -hmm. And then they moved to graphics cards because graphics cards are, by virtue of their very architecture, extremely parallel, right? You have hundreds or thousands of cores in a graphics card. That's the idiosyncrasy of their design. So they could do this far more efficiently in parallel. And now we've got these ASICs, which I suppose are super, super parallel optimized chips. So what you're saying is that this is something that has to be solved sequentially, like hashing and rehashing a value. Yeah. And VDFs are kind of similar to time lock puzzles where some value is locked for some period of time, but then anyone can unlock it. And these are really powerful in randomness generation, for example, where traditionally, if you had a commit reveal scheme and multiple people committed to different values, and then you like XORed all their values together, but someone realized that they don't like the outcome of XORing all those values, so they just don't reveal the value, then all of a sudden, the randomness that could have been generated is aborted. But with a VDF, once everyone's just sent their commit VDF message, there's no way that you can abort the creation of the randomness value. Okay. And so this is why, so when you're saying XORing all their values, you're talking about commit reveal system. Yeah. 
Ah, right. And that's why a VDF is more appealing. Yeah. Okay. You know, you're bringing me up to speed on all of the stuff that I just haven't had time to follow. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah. I definitely think there could be other use cases of VDFs. I've not sat down and thought too much about it, but there's definitely a lot of cool places it can be applied to. We live in such a different time to where we were even just a year ago. Oh, yes. And that's what I love about the blockchain space. It's brought out so much of cryptography and distributed systems research into mainstream light. And it's like constantly using all of the new research that's happening and applying it somewhere. Cool. Well, I'm just looking right now at Hacking Distributed, and this article is called One File for the Price of Three, Catching Cheating Servers in Decentralized Storage Networks. Nice. Ethan Chichetti, Ian Myers, and Ari Jules. I've probably mispronounced some of those names. Well, this has been great, Apana. It's awesome to catch up and to learn so much about all of the work you're doing. And it's funny because, you know, I mean, I remember we met in India, but hilariously, you actually live in Berkeley, which is... <laughs> <laughs> just across the pond. Yeah. It's wonderful to catch up with you too, Arthur. And thanks for having me on the podcast. We'll check in again to see how things have progressed at Mechanism Labs and some of the cool work you guys have been doing. Absolutely. Cool. Thanks for having me. Great. Bye. Find out more at mechanismlabs.io and follow Apana on Twitter at Apana Locked. Thanks for listening to The Third Web. If you like this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, follow on Twitter at The Third Web, or visit thethirdweb.net for episode notes, further episodes, and also filmed interviews.